What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Boardroom's Out of Office podcast. My name is Rich Kleiman. Here, as always, with my brother Gianni. What's up, Rich? What's good, man? So this is our eighth podcast. Yes, sir. Eighth podcast. We got a special guest today. We got uh, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, Mr. David Solomon. But not just the CEO of Goldman Sachs, a producer, a DJ. Man, this is a unique one. Yeah, I'm excited. It should be normal, or it should be okay, and it should be something that we don't speak about, right? Like, everybody in any position, they have hobbies, whether it's playing golf, playing tennis. Um, I think in this case, this man works super hard. I'm going to ask him right off the bat about the fact that he was in the office every single day since the pandemic ended. And the way he relaxes and the way he unwinds is he's a DJ and he's a producer and a remixer. And honestly, not much different than what KD does to relax. He makes music. I think it's incredible. And I think that it very much in line with the culture that he created there as well, which we'll get into. So... Man, I don't want to give away everything, right? We gotta, we gotta ask right. him all this. We gotta stuff. save something. But on top of what you were saying, I do want to say that I'm so excited for this guest because I think he really represents everything we're about on Boardroom Out of Office. He's the top at his field, and he's doing a million other things that I can't wait to dive into. Yes, for sure. And it's like for me, I had to focus a little bit before this one. You know, not that I'm not focused before all of them, but. If I'm talking to Doc Rivers, man, I could talk basketball and that part of my brain and my sleep. But we're talking to the guy who's the CEO of Goldman Sachs, man. Right. All right. Well, enough of us, right? Let's get into it. So without further ado, as I said, I'd like to introduce Mr. David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, well-respected music producer and DJ. And... um and somebody I'm excited to learn from. David, man, welcome to the podcast. Let me ask you a question right off the bat. I think it was in May, at like the height of the pandemic, you told me that you had been in the office every day, and I was completely shocked um, and surprised. Can you talk me through a little bit of that decision and what your thought process was as things started to unfold? Sure. And, and, and first off, thanks, you know, thanks for having me, and, uh, and I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. Uh, it, it wasn't a decision like I woke up one day and it was just, I'm going to be in the office every day during a pandemic. I came back from traveling in Dallas around the 11th or 12th of March, you know, those couple of days where it was clear this was really evolving into something that was much, much more significant here in the United States. And there were a lot of problems for our business that came with that. And those couple of weeks, you know, really from, from that time in March, you know, to the end of March, Enormous market volatility, lots of settlement issues, liquidity issues for big financial firms. Uh, and it just kind of put us all full force, you know, into dealing with those issues. And we were in the office. And as we progressed and we made progress, even though we were sending people home, I just felt more comfortable. And I also think it also sent the right message that the captain was kind of hands on the wheel of the ship as we were dealing with some pretty bumpy days. As we came out of it, and things stabilized, although it was clear we were in for a, you know, a difficult period of time where things were shut down. I liked the routine of coming to the office. I liked the message it sent, and I just kind of evolved to it. And it was a really weird, eerie time in New York. There, were, um, there was just no one here. 
it was it was dead quiet. The weather was horrible in March and April if you were in New York this spring. And um, but I still I you know I bundle up and I I walk to work, walk home sometimes. Really quiet, really peaceful. There were only sixty out of ten thousand people in our building. Uh, but I think it sent the right message. And and for me, the structure made it easier for me you know, to operate in what was a challenging time. So when you talk about like sending the right message um, and riding the ship, I think everybody knows what the ship is, right? I think Goldman Sachs in a lot of ways rings certain bells that a McDonald's or a Coca-Cola would. Like it's a real brand name. But I think if you pressed anybody to really explain what Goldman Sachs did. They'd be scared to ask the question and then couldn't even answer it if someone asked them. So can can you do us the favor as the CEO of Goldman Sachs and and try to ask a very or answer a very layman's question in what does Goldman Sachs do? Sure. So Goldman Sachs is a financial services firm that has been around for a little over 150 years. It was started in 1869 uh, and started out in the business of uh, of, of servicing commercial paper, which were promissory notes that were freely traded as merchants wanted to uh, create short-term borrowing to fund their businesses. That was the first business that we were in as an organization. But over the last 150 years, uh, it's developed you know, broadly into a financial services firm that really helps principally three different kinds of clients, big you know, governments and corporations with their financial needs, institutions with their financial needs and individuals with their financial needs. And the firm is really operating on three principal platform businesses. The first, which is the business that most people know us by is our, what you call investment banking business, which includes investment banking and global markets. And those are the businesses that service governments, corporations and institutional investors around advice, capital raising, market liquidity, uh, those types of activities. And that's, that's a big platform that's sometimes called a corporate investment bank. And that's, that's a business where we have leading market shares, leading position, you know, are extremely, extremely well established and very, very visible. The second big platform is we're one of the largest active asset managers in the world. We manage well over $2 trillion for clients that include institutions, governments, pensions, also wealthy individuals. Um, and that asset management business is global. It includes alternatives and more liquid products to money markets. It includes active equity, active fixed income. And we're one of the, just in terms of assets managed, one of the top five to seven active asset managers in the world. That's the second big platform that we're in. The third, which, which is developing and evolving, is we've always had a very high-end wealth management business, managing money for kind of ultra high net worth clients. Um, a way to think about that is you know, we manage money for 10,000 of the 70,000 wealthiest you know, individuals, but we've been expanding that business to manage money for a much broader group of people, including mass affluent People, the digitization of services allows you to expand those platforms. And we started in the last five years a consumer business where we're providing certain banking services 100% digitally to consumers. We have no branches or anything like that. And we're developing a consumer and wealth management business 
that's digital and expands our capabilities there, and that's a big growth area for the firm. And so those are really the three big business platforms that the firm's evolved into, and we do it on a global basis, about 40,000 employees in 45 countries around the world. See, Gianni, there's a lot of people listening now that are, are thankful that we asked that question, and now if anyone ever says you don't know, all your friends that are sitting there, he's 25 years old. If they say you don't know what Goldman Sachs does, you can say, I know exactly what Goldman Sachs does. I know the three different pillars. Exactly. So you grew up in New York, right? In Westchester, is that right? I grew up in Westchester. I went to, I went to Edgemont High School, and, and I, I lived in Hartsdale, New York. Um, Edgemont is, is um, there are two, uh, there are, you know, good public schools up there. Um, Edgemont is a community that, um, that sits both in Hartsdale and Scarsdale, New York. Um, and it was a small, it was a small high school. There were about six hundred and fifty kids in my high school, about one hundred twenty-five kids in my high school class. Um, but I, but I grew up in the New York area, and then you know went to went to college in upstate New York. So I've I've, I've spent a lot of time in New York in my life. And what what were you? Um, I guess like at what point did you first kind of recognize what your like aspirations were in terms of a career? Um, and what were they uh, originally when you started thinking about your future? Well, the world's a lot different today than it was back in the, um, in the late 70s and early 80s. I, um, I got out of high school in 1980, and I graduated from college in 1984. Uh, unlike today, when people are planning their internships when they're in high school, I, um, you know, I, worked, uh, I, you know, I worked regular jobs. Uh, you know, I, I, I worked in high school at Baskin-Robbins scooping ice cream, at McDonald's flipping hamburgers, um, I was a lifeguard uh, the summer of my, after my senior year in high school. Um, I worked as a camp counselor um, uh, up in New Hampshire uh, for a number of summers while I was in college. And I didn't really, I didn't really have, you know, this path that I was on. I did one summer that I was in college take a real internship. Um, and I went to intern at Merrill Lynch uh, in New York City in a brokerage office as a cold caller. And I was basically given, I was, I was 20 years old and I was given a zip code list of people who lived in certain zip codes in New York City. And I had to make a hundred phone calls a day and try to get someone interested in meeting with a Merrill Lynch broker. And I got that job more, more because it wasn't because I had this profound interest, you know, in business, but I got that job because at the time my girlfriend's father ran a Merrill Lynch office in New York. And it seemed like, he was like, come intern. It seemed like a good thing, a good thing to do. It was a horrible experience on the one hand. I mean, making a hundred cold calls a day is pretty brutal. Um, hard to imagine in today's day and age, but people actually back then did answer the phone when you made a cold call. But it was a great lesson because it really, it taught me, taught me to pick up the phone. It taught me a little bit how to sell and engage people. And so, you know, a good experience. But when I graduated from college, I was thinking about going to law school, uh, and I kind of stumbled into a bank training program in New York City. At the time, the big commercial banks would hire people and basically put you in school in their offices for a year. It was like a graduate business education. I went to work for a bank called the Irving Trust Company, and I really went and did it because a bunch of my friends were heading to New York. Um, these were good jobs. Uh, it paid $22,500, which seemed like a monstrous amount of money in 1984, but more importantly, it allowed me to live in New York City with a group of my friends and, and start to learn. And, um, and I did that for a couple of years, uh, but I didn't, it's not like at that moment I thought I was going to be in finance for my whole career. I certainly, I 
I certainly didn't have aspirations, you know, to run Goldman Sachs. In fact, I had applied for a job at Goldman Sachs when I was getting out of college, and I didn't get an interview. So, uh, so you know, it, it, uh, it certainly was an evolution over time. That's great. That's like uh, I'm going to tell that part of the story along with Michael Jordan not making his high school basketball team as a freshman, which was that at a college, Goldman Sachs wouldn't even give you an interview, and now you're the CEO of Goldman Sachs. That's a good story to tell people. So, you know, that confirms a theory I have in some ways, which is that a lot of times, especially friends of mine growing up in New York City, um, the the creative minds, the people that always were a bit more entrepreneurial, were trying different things out, always talked about like their reticence to want to go into the world of finance. And then a lot of times the guys that were going into finance out of college were doing it um, for similar circumstances, right? You could have had a connection to get into the world. And very rarely did I ever meet kids when I was in college or, or after college that said that they really wanted to be in finance. It felt like they wanted to do it because there was their best chance of making money. When you talk to young people now and you talk about um, the finance world and people talk to you about their desires to be in the finance world, you said you didn't have that interest as a kid. What do you see is the landscape now of young people as it relates to the finance world? Well, I think one of the things I talked about you know, just a few minutes ago is how different you know, things are. I, um, I think there's enormous pressure on kids even in high school, to be thinking about their career and the specific steps they're going to take to advance their chances to get certain jobs and, and, and you know, entree into certain parts of the business world. The case for finance, and by the way, I think it was true back when I started, and I think it's true now, it's, it's a great way to learn about business. It's a great way to gain experience. It's a great way to meet people and form a network. And I think that's only been amplified in the world we live in today. So there are definitely... Um, in the with the transparency of the world today, there are definitely young people in college that are really interested in finance and business. Um, but there are also others that see it as a really interesting platform to get a further education, a practical education outside of school, to meet people and create a network, and to do it for three, five, seven years before going off in a different direction. And a lot of the professional services businesses, consulting is like this too. They're great platforms for further development. And, um, and I, think that's a very, I think that's a very good model for us. We attract a lot of world-class talent. We spend a lot of money and time and emphasis on training them and helping them develop. A slice of them stay with us and build careers with us, and a slice of them go out in the world and become clients of the firm. And so it's, it's, it's a good model considering you know, our ability to really be very, very attractive for people coming out of school as a place to start your career, to develop at the early stages of your career. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. 20 years later, those same people are the ones we're all like, damn, I wish I went into finance, man. They are really living a pretty good life right now. It's one of these long-term things. You've got to, you've got to invest a bunch up front, but it's a mentorship apprenticeship kind of business. But once you get to the point where you have clients and you have a platform you, know, you get a lot of flexibility and a lot of platform to do a lot of things, but you've got you to invest in it and build in it to get there. You know, I, I wonder though, uh, the journey you took was a long one, right? And you've had a lot of success along the way, but there's a lot of persistence and I'm sure tireless years, not tireless nights, tireless years. Um, 
being that you are unique in the role that you have, at any point in this climb, were there times where you thought about like, you know what, the, the, the road seems so far ahead for me, I could go start my own shop here? Or what if I took my few years of experience and now went into to build my own business or to get into the music business? Um, outside of as an artist, did you ever look elsewhere on your climb up the corporate ladder? Sure. And it's, it, it is a long road. And, you know, I've been at this for, you know, for 36 or 37 years. It's a, it's, it's a, um, it's a long road for sure. But the goal, the goal wasn't, I was never, I never had a goal that I was going to run Goldman Sachs. What my goal was, was to learn, to enjoy what I was doing. Um, and also to be in a position to provide for my family and, um, and provide financial security for my family. I mean, when I, when I started out, you know, I didn't have any of those things. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I was going to be passionate about it. And I was really starting with nothing. So, you know, it was, it was, it was a blank sheet. What I found is I, as I got into it, and I did it as I really loved the business. And I really loved certain aspects of the business. The entrepreneurial freedom at a young age, it provided me to really interact with people that were much older, much more experienced. I loved that. I loved thinking about businesses, how businesses worked really trying to pick them apart and understand what worked, what didn't. And so I get, became very passionate and very motivated about the business. And then I just kept doing it. And what I found along the way, um, and I, you know, I worked at a number of firms and I had an interesting path. I didn't get to Goldman Sachs until 1999 when I was 37 or 38 years old, but I enjoyed it. And I also found that there were certain things about being in bigger organizations and providing leadership to big groups of people in bigger organizations that really stimulated me. And so while other things came along that were interesting, in some cases more lucrative, I kind of liked the large organizational platform and got committed to it. And then I was very lucky to have the opportunity to join Goldman Sachs as a partner in 1999. And, you know, I just, I really enjoyed it. And I, I had no idea where it would go. There were a number of times when I almost stepped off, but I just, I kept advancing. And so I, I kept with it. And, um, and, you know, it, it, it ultimately led me to a place, but it wasn't, wasn't like that was the plan. Well, it's, it's amazing you say that. I think sometimes that that's been lost a bit. Um, and I know even, you know, I'm 43. When I was um, in my early 20s, I didn't have the patience or even the mind to think that I could to put in 20, 30 years and, and to see that in front of me. Um, and I now think that people always think of it as the alternative. Like uh, I'm either going to be an entrepreneur or maybe I'll go work in corporate America, but I have started to realize and um, have started to talk about it a bit on this platform and, and others is how you can be entrepreneurial within an infrastructure and within a corporate environment. You clearly just confirmed that. Um, but it does feel like, and Gianni, tell me if I'm wrong amongst your friends, it does feel like going to work for a corporation is like the opposite of what kids think is, you know, trying to be known or regarded or, or successful, right? At, at, at the moment, I mean, we're, we're going through a, uh, a moment in time where there is this perception that going to work at a startup is a more interesting, entrepreneurial, stimulating thing to do for some people. The reality of it is that some startups work great, most startups don't. Um, and you get a different kind of experience in a startup based on the infrastructure of the resources they have to mentor, to tutor, to grow, to develop. And in addition, you know, big companies can be pretty entrepreneurial in terms of what they do. Look at what Walmart's doing right now with TikTok. 
okay, you know, provided it goes through. Look at what Goldman Sachs has done in starting a consumer business from scratch. You know, we've built a digital consumer platform that will have a billion dollars of revenue, over a billion dollars of revenue this year. And the people that work in that business, they feel like they're in an entrepreneurial startup. So, you know, it's none of this stuff's black and white. Um, there are different kinds of experiences for different people. But careers are long roads. And I, I think the key theme that I always think about when I'm asked to give advice to young people is, you know, nothing comes easy. Of course, everybody can tell you a story about somebody that, you know, wins a golden ticket. But for, you know, for 999,000 out of a million of us, um, hard work, long-term view, long-term commitment, being patient, making an investment in what you're doing, you know, those things lead to, you know, good results. And, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a long road. And, you know, as you know, building a platform takes a lot of investment and a lot of patience. And, you know, it doesn't generally come easy and fast. Yeah. No, that's for sure. And, and I think that it doesn't come without the challenges and, and kind of the, like, the peaks and valleys. What were some of the kind of challenges moving up the corporate ladder that you encountered, even as you were gaining such success? It's, uh, I think it's true in, in, you know, almost anyone's, you know, career story. You work for people you like, you work for people you don't like. Okay, it's very easy to work for someone you like, who's mentoring you, who's helping you. It's a better experience for long-term, um, you know, for long-term resilience to have to figure out how to work for someone you don't like <laughs> that's not helping you and actually succeed at that. And so... You know, everyone has those experiences. I think it's how you respond to those experiences that has an impact on your, you know, your longer term success. And so I had people I didn't like working for. I had jobs I liked less, jobs I liked more. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, things go wrong, you make mistakes. And I think one of the important things to do when you make a mistake and you get knocked down is you got to get up, dust yourself off and go forward. But you have to be self-reflective and try to say, okay, well, what did I do wrong there? Why? What was my thought process? You know, what can I learn from that so I can do better? You, you know, those are, those are things that I think you, skills you develop as you navigate through a career. Who were some of the most like kind of positive influences on you? I, you know, I was very lucky to have some great, great mentors along the way. There's a, there's a gentleman that I worked for when I worked at Bear Stearns in the 1990s whose name was Richie Metric. Um, and he was much, much older. He was very, very very, very worldly, but super, super smart. And he just had a great ability to help me understand and mature. You know, his coaching and his counseling accelerated, you know, my maturity in my 30s and helped me be more successful there at a younger age. I obviously was very, very lucky, you know, to work for Lloyd Blankfein, you know, here at, at Goldman Sachs, who really, you know, mentored me, developed me, gave me lots of different opportunities, um, you know, that, that helped me at a later stage in my career. And there were, you know, a number of other people, you know, around that. Also, some of the partnerships you have uh, with people that are your peers are super important. And so I think that's one of the great things about business is really finding people that mentor you, finding people you can mentor, and, you know, really figuring out how you can keep learning constantly. And I think you can learn from both being a mentor and being a mentee. What about being in the finance world and having your name be Richie Metrics? That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was spelled M-E-T-R-I-C-K, but boy, he, oh, oh, okay. he knew the metrics. He had an incredible mind. He could, he could remember a number 15 pages down 
Um, you know, if he looked at it once, he was he was really remarkable that way. He had a remarkable recall. It should be spelled metrics then. On your ascent through the business, when did you um, start to kind of realize that, or or think to yourself that if if and when you got to the position you're in now, or if it was at a different firm or in a different place, that your leadership style and the culture that you wanted to set for a company that you would run would be different um, from what you had experienced. Not that what you'd experienced was bad, but just that you had wanted to evolve upon that. Well, you know, I think that, um, I think that when you're running a business, you know, even in a big firm, you're trying to evolve the culture in some way, even in that business, regardless of where the firm culture is. Um, you know, along the way, along the way, it became, it, it, it became clear to me that I love the leadership aspect of the job and that, you know, there was a chance, you know, some, sometime in the last, you know, five to seven years, it became clear to me that there was a chance that I could run Goldman Sachs, but there was still, it was still probably unlikely um, because it's, it's, it's always unlikely um, until the moment it happens. And by the way, timing has so much to, you know, to do with it um, in, in uh, you know, in so many, in so many different ways. And so, um, I certainly got lucky that at the time that Lloyd was ready to create succession, I was actually in a place where I could really be considered. If he had decided to leave three or four years earlier, I wouldn't have been the CEO. So luck and timing has a lot to, um, a lot to do with it. But I, you know, I did come to the conclusion that if I, if I didn't get the job, which I thought was more likely, I was going to want to go run a business someplace else. I wanted the opportunity to run a business and therefore to have an impact on the culture of a business in a meaningful way. I think all organizations that succeed over the longer term have to have a very strong cultural foundation. And this organization has a very strong, after 150 years, very strong uh, cultural foundation. This organization is extremely focused on client service. This organization is focused on excellence at a very, very high level. This organization is focused on integrity in everything we do. And this organization has been for 150 years a partnership. And there's a real sense of partnership, culture, and collaboration in the organization. Those are foundational parts of the culture of the organization, and they don't change. But what does change is organizations have to adapt to the world they're living in. They have to become, uh, they have to become or evolve constantly to make sure they remain competitive. They're super attractive in bringing people, talented people in. And, you know, I felt a need to really try to evolve and modernize, you know, our culture and our platform a little bit to continue to make sure we're moving forward and we continue to be as competitive as an attractor and retainer of talent as we need to be to succeed. And so that's slightly different. My approach and my style is slightly different than Lloyd's, but the cultural foundation of partnership, client service, integrity, excellence, you know, that foundation is alive and well at Goldman Sachs. And I'm trying to find ways to support that in a, you know, in a, in a slightly different way. A friend of mine who runs a Fortune 500 business in the media space told me that during some of the first few months of the pandemic, they had a town hall, or, or even more recently, they had a town hall and 100% of the questions were about quality of life, quality of work life, um, and making the appropriate 
changes and, and asks that were needed and nothing about the business day to day. And that kind of stuff is clearly so paramount and connects so much more to the majority of the employee base. What were some of the changes that you felt like you needed to make in terms of that? Some of the small, like tangible things that while they might seem small, were things that you felt like needed to encourage a, just a, a new kind of, of work system? I wanted, you know, I, I, I wanted, I wanted, you know, Goldman Sachs, there are a lot of things about Goldman Sachs brand and reputation that it represents that I think are terrific. And there are some that, you know, I'm trying to evolve or soften. I, I, you know, I think Goldman Sachs has been a little bit mysterious, a little bit feared, um, a little bit envied. And I've wanted to make it, you know, more open, more transparent, more approachable. Um, I wanted the leadership, which in some ways was more isolated to be more, you know, authentic um, and accessible. Our organization's a very young organization. Nearly half the organization is in its 20s. Um, approximately 75% of the organization is millennial or Gen Z. Uh, and so, you know, that, that generation wants and expects certain things from leadership and the organization they're working in that, um, that's different than my generation did, you know, 35 years ago. Uh, I, you know, I think an, an, an indicator of the world changing and how you adapt to it um, is the fact that if you go back when I started in this business, you know, the business from a, the way you looked, the way you dressed was very buttoned up. Everybody wore suits. They wore dark suits. They wore dark shoes. You know, over time, the world's gotten more casual. You know, when I came into New York City occasionally for a special occasion or a birthday and went to dinner, you go into restaurants, everybody had a jacket and tie on. You can't find somebody in a jacket and tie in a restaurant in New York today. So the world is more casual. For Goldman Sachs to be an outlier, you know, to that doesn't help Goldman Sachs. And so when I became the CEO, I looked around and the organization was dressing very casually, but we hadn't formally changed our dress code. So I basically said, it's different for everybody. If you're an engineer and you're coding, there's an appropriate dress code. If you're going to see a government, if you're, you're, you're going to Washington to see somebody in government, there's an appropriate dress code. There's lots in the middle. Dress, dress in an appropriate manner for your day, your clients, your interactions, um, but in an appropriate, you know, an appropriate manner. And, uh, and that, you know, that was something that was viewed. If you actually go look in the media, there were more articles written about that announcement than there were about the fact that I became the CEO. And so it's, it's just interesting how that's, it's a really small, insignificant thing, but it sends a message. Um, and that message evolves the organization and the way the organization's perceived. And that's what I think you have to do as a leader. You pick your spots, you pick your things that you want to do, but you make sure that the core cultural foundation remains very strong. It's, you mentioned um, the, the media's coverage. I was going to ask you, how did you feel like some of these small changes um, and even some of the, uh, the bigger ones that you made were received, I could think, internally and also externally? I mean, I think, you know, internally, uh, you know, I think the things that we're doing are extremely well received. Uh, and, you know, I feel very, very good about that. Externally, you know, some of them, there's, there's, there's going to be cynicism externally. There's going to be praise externally. You know, one of the things that I think that you have, to, you have to evolve with if you're in one of these positions is you have to have real thick skin. You have to have a compass. You have to have kind of a guiding, you know, north that you're driving toward 
And you have to understand that as you're driving there, because it takes time, there are going to be things people like, things people don't like. But as long as you're following your compass and you're moving in that direction and you're being transparent and you're also kind of looking in the mirror, you know, every now and then and trying to be reflective on what's, you know, what's coming back, you know, there'll be things you like, things you don't, but you got to keep moving in that direction. So some of the things in the media I like, some of the things I don't, but, you know, as long as I think I'm on track with the organizational direction and the feedback I'm getting internally um, is positive on where we're going and what we're trying to do, uh, you know, you continue on the course and you've got to be very communicative, very transparent, you know, very clear with people what you expected and of the organization. David, so I want to ask you around, around the culture of finance, do you think being an international DJ and producer impacts some of your relationships at Goldman? Sure. I think one of the things, so look, I've had, I've, this, has been, this has been a hobby for some period of time, but it was a hobby that I had and my friends knew I had, but it wasn't visible. Um, the fact that I got a big job and I was doing it, somebody saw me and it became visible. And at that point in time, I had to decide to keep doing it or to stop. I chose to keep doing it because my attitude, why not? I like this. I'm passionate about it. Nothing wrong with it. Um, I didn't really think through what some of the implications would be. One of the implications I think has clearly been it made me more relatable to the young people that work at Goldman Sachs. People in their 20s and 30s could relate to me in a different way than before they knew that aspect about me. And I think there's, there's an interesting lesson in that for all of us as leaders. We, we see ourselves as just ourselves. I mean, you know, because, you, know you grow up, you get older, you know, you wake up every day, you have your friends, you have your family. And, you know, they look at you, they, they look at me as just David. I'm David. I'm the same person I've been for a long time. But when you have one of these monikers, when you're in one of these positions, the world looks at you and you're very, very unapproachable. And I think one of the things that leaders have to do today is they've got to be approachable. And one of the ways to be approachable is to be authentic. Be open about who you are, what you believe in, what you do. Be open and authentic. That's a big change. And by the way, I'm seeing that from a lot of CEOs, you know, CEOs around the world, because I think it's... It helps you relate to your people. Your people relate to you. It gives your people the opportunity to be authentic and pursuing their interests and understanding that it's okay to work hard and also play hard or have other outside interests. And I think just generally it makes it easier to, to connect with people. And so I, I learned a lot from that experience. That wouldn't have been my natural reaction, you know, to share like that. And so one of the things, you know, I've become, I've become much more open about who I am, what I'm doing, you know, in this leadership position. And, you know, generally it's well received. Of course, there are some cynics and some skeptics, but that's like anything else. Um, and, you know, you got to, you, you do what you like to do. It's well received over here for sure. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. What is, will you explain a little bit about, I mean, I was able to, um, I know when Katie and I visited you, like I went into like 20 question mode about your music career and we had a lot of friends in common. Um, but will you talk to me a bit about your relationship with music and the backstory and how long you've been DJing and producing? Yeah. So I, 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 I mean, I've always, I've always loved music, um, you know, and, and, and certainly, you know, in the, <laughs> In the 70s and 80s, I was a big rock and roll guy. I'm a big Bruce Springsteen guy. Uh, and, um, but I mean, I've always loved all music. I was back when I went to college and you had vinyl albums. It was actually before CDs. CDs came out while I was in college. But, you know, I was a guy with, you know, with tens of milk cartons filled with vinyl albums. I think I must have three or 4,000 vinyl albums. I was one of the guys that was always making tapes for parties. 
um, I just, you know, I just loved music uh, and, you know, enjoyed it, you know, very readily. As music started to, um, to digitize, you know, I, I really got into curating it, um, putting together playlists, et cetera. But what really kind of got me into this, um, because I knew nothing about house music or dance music, you know, 10, 12 years ago, I had been very involved in the, in the 80s, the 90s, and into the 2000s in financing the building and the expansion in Las Vegas. Um, and I had done work with, with Steve Wynn. I had done work with Kirk Kikorian. I had done work with Sheldon Adelson, a lot of work with Sheldon Adelson over time as these big buildings were being built. And in, you know, 10 years or so ago, it was a little more than 10 years ago, uh, when the Wynn was developing the Encore, um, I was out there and I was looking at the plans for it and the plans included a club called XS, which was monstrous in its size. And I didn't really understand the economics of that. And I was given a tour of the current club that was in the wind, which at the time was called Trist. It's now called Intrigue. And I went down there, and I didn't really understand the economics of how these clubs were working, but they were hugely powerful economically. But I walked in, and I loved the music. And it was kind of when the whole DJ house music scene was really exploding. And so I started following that music a little bit. And, um, you know, after that, sometime after that, I reached out to someone I knew in the music business and said, I really want to learn about house music about EDM music, uh, who can I talk to? And I was introduced to Paul Oakenfold. Um, and Paul's about my age, and we kind of hit it off. I went to have coffee with him out in Los Angeles. We had a good time, and he started encouraging me to learn how to DJ and to learn more about the music. And he started teaching me a little bit, and then he introduced me to somebody uh, you know, in New York that started coming to my apartment, and I was just kind of playing around. But then I started, I, I kind of was – kind of getting better at it. Paul came to New York to play, and he gave me an hour uh, to, uh, to play when he was playing at, uh, at Marquis. Um, you know, there was no, it was 11 to 12, so there was nobody there. But I really liked it, and I started messing around in New York, going to diving places, downtown, uptown, anywhere I could play. I was playing for free. Um, and I really enjoyed it. It was a hobby. And, uh, and then started trying to learn a little bit about producing, and then I was kind of outed. Um, about four years ago when I became president of the firm. Uh, and I decided to just keep doing it. But I spent more time trying to learn how to produce, worked with some guys, put some stuff out, kind of got some traction. And then I said, okay, well, if I have this platform and I, I realize that I'm having the opportunity because of my professional life, not because I'm the greatest music producer or DJ in the world, I'm competent, um, I got to do some good with it. And so I created a label called Payback Records, I decided that any money I made from producing or from actually DJing, uh, you know, publicly would all go to charities, started focusing on addiction charities, I've now been a little bit more focused on COVID relief, you know, in addition to addiction, but I'm slowly building a platform that's allowing me to produce music, create a library that will perpetuate an annuity of money that can go to charity and, um, and try to build on that. I actually just had Oliver Heldens just released a track on, uh, on Payback Records called Break the Habit. Uh, it's doing very, very well where he's agreed that all the proceeds from a record, besides, you know, the, the label share, but his proceeds also will get directed charitably. Uh, and so, you know, my vision is you can build a label where people will put some music out with a goal of having money go to good causes. I can continue to do something that I enjoy and try to direct money in, in a way. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. And it's, look, it's an experiment. I don't know where it'll go. Um, but so far, um, I've enjoyed it. I, I, 
I've got a track out right now that, that uh, it was 25 last week on Billboard Top 40 Dance um, that, uh, that I, 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 I really like a lot. It's called Someone Like You. It features a singer named Giacocca, and it's, you know, we'll just see where it all goes. Go stream Someone Like You right now if you're listening. <laughs>I'll tell you, it's got to be one of the coolest things ever that you are. And I told you this when we first spoke. Um, and I know that world a bit. You know, I manage DJs. I broker deals in Vegas and residencies. And I loved the culture of it. And I was deep in it. I could never imagine um, managing the role you're at in your life and and being in the music business. Have you Have you allowed yourself no ceiling to what your music can become? Like, do you think about that way? Well, there is, there, is, there is a ceiling because it's a hobby and I have a day job that takes most of my time. And so, you know, I do have some guys that, that, that help me, you know, organize it. Um, you know, I work, with a really, I work with a really, really talented engineer. Um, but basically, this is something on Sunday afternoons, you know, I go into the music studio for a few hours on Sunday afternoons. And so it takes, takes time, you know, to, to make stuff and, and, and do stuff. And so... You know, this year, if I can produce four tracks, you know, that would be fantastic. But the ceiling on it, it has a real ceiling. It's a hobby. I'm trying to do some good with the platform. Uh, but I've got a big, big job. I am focused on my job. And this is like a way for me to take my mind off, use the creative side of my brain, and hopefully do some good. You know, if it continues to develop, it'll develop. But it'll always be constrained by the fact that my time is going to be, while I'm the CEO of Goldman Sachs, my time is going to be limited. and you know, in a normal non-COVID time, you know, if I can play publicly 10 times, 10 times a year, that would be a lot. Yeah, but I think you bring up a good point because you mentioned it's a hobby. And I think that something I've started to uh, realize consistently is that you have this perception of these incredibly successful people. And you think that they're working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I think when you do hear the ones talk about what they regret, it's always regret either chasing a passion or spending enough time with their kids. What is your work um, and I guess life balance and, and what does like a day look like and how do you give yourself that time to kind of be free of, of thought of what's going on in this world and, and the company you run? Yeah, well, I, th I think one of the things I think is very important, nobody works all the time and if they do, they're seriously unhealthy and nobody can be, nobody can be productive if they don't have things in their life that matter and create balance in their life. So it starts with family, okay, and friends um, and making time for family and friends. And it obviously then includes things that you enjoy, things that take you away from it. And you have to have some balance in your life because it's a marathon. And, uh, you, know, you, you know, maybe you can go at it really hard for a year or two if you've got something really intense going on, but at the end of the day, you have to have balance and you've got to find a way to do that. Now, one of the things that I think's natural and interesting, I never could have done this when my kids were young. I mean, when my kids were young, when I was in my thirties and my kids were young and I was racing, you know, to, to try to move myself successfully in business. And I was also trying to be a really important part of raising a family, which is obviously more important than the business stuff. You know, I felt like I was way down the totem pole in terms of my personal hobbies and interests, you know, as a priority. But my kids are now grown. My kids are 28 and 26. Um, I have, I, I work very, very hard, but you have a little bit more time when you get to this stage of life. 
to kind of prioritize, you know, where you want to spend it. I think it's very important. I have a lot of, I like to play golf. I like to play golf and I enjoy it, but I probably play golf 12 times, you know, 15 times a year. I have friends that play golf that are really hardworking people that play golf 60 times a year. Okay. To go play golf generally takes four or five hours. Okay. All the time that they're playing golf, if I play golf less and I take that four or five hours and go into the music studio, same amount of time. <laughs> it's, 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 just, it's just time. What do, you, what do you choose to do? I, I, I balance different things. I, I like to do a lot of things. I, during the good weather, I like to road bike. So that takes time. Um, I like to kite surf. Um, I only get to do that a handful of times a year, but that takes time. Um, I like to ski. I like to play tennis. I now like to play pickleball. I've discovered pickleball. Boy, that's a fun game because everybody can play it. So I'm active. I have interests. There are a lot of things I like to do. I work very, very hard. You know, I'm a little bit of a weekend warrior. Um, but, uh, but that creates balance for me. And I think that gives me energy so I can keep that level of commitment and focus that I need, you know, on my job for 60 to 70 hours a week. Yeah. I know people that I think are hardworking and also play golf like 15 times a weekend, you know? <laughs> so I think, um, I totally make sense. And speaking of sports, that's an odd segue, Gianni, but right. <laughs> uh, but speaking, that was a tough, that was a tough golf course this weekend. Boy, that was a tough golf course yesterday. That was tough. That was tough. I've actually, I, um, uh, I come from a golf family, but I'm a tennis player for cert similar reasons. In some ways I can't make the four or five hour commitment. I always felt like I travel, too much for work that that would be a bit gratuitous and selfish to just go play five hours so i play tennis which is like an hour hour and a half commitment but pickleball i want to play i have a lot of friends of mine that play definitely play it's a great game a ton of fun and the cool thing about it is even if you haven't played you can go out and play and enjoy it yeah uh, it's, it's it's really it's a ton of fun i'm a serious tennis player so you let me know well, if you ever need you'll, a double you'll seriously have to realize it's a different swing <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Uh-oh, that feels like a challenge, David. I'm ready. Um, I, mean, I, was, I, was, I was a big tennis player, too. I still enjoy playing tennis, but it's, 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 it's different. But the cool thing about it is, you know, you can go out, you can play with your kids, you can play with your parents, you can, I mean, it's just yep. everybody can play and enjoy it. And then you can play it at a very high level where, you know, I'm not good enough to play at that level, but it's pretty cool and pretty fast. Do you, um, like, we met through sports, and I for me, uh, you know, like and Kevin always says, it's insane to him how far basketball's taken him. It's taken him all around the world and the people he's been able to meet, and it's from this game that he loves. Not in the same way, but I've been fortunate to get the trust of Kevin and then indirectly have sports and the sport of basketball take me into places that I never thought I could be. Um, I met you through sports, you know, so I, I'm having this podcast because of um, my relationship with sports. What um, what does Goldman Sachs do in that world? You know, the NBA, the NFL, these are some of the biggest companies and institutions in the world. I know you guys manage a lot of athletes' assets and um, um, taking companies, I mean, taking uh, teams to, to sale. But what, what do you guys do in the sports world? And, and does it look to be a bigger part of the business in the future at all? Well, it's, it's uh, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, we basically, we deal with with, with companies, with institutions, and with individuals. And sports, you know, has, sports has, you know, all, you know, all three. Um, and sports is a huge business, and it's becoming a bigger business. 
Uh, and it's become, you know, for Goldman Sachs, because it's a big business, a bigger part of our portfolio of businesses over the course of the last 20 years. Uh, and my guess is, given the continued growth of sports and the platform of sports broadly, that will continue to increase, you know, in terms of uh, the, the activity that we have around, you know, around sports broadly. Um, but through the lens of who we are and how we help certain types of clients and we help certain kinds of businesses, you can see how sports is one of a number of industries that fits nicely into the advisory, financing, uh, and, um, and, and wealth management businesses uh, that, uh, you know, that are core to what we do. The three coolest things about Goldman to me, I'm friends with the CEO, you make the coolest uh, Apple card. The white Goldman Sachs Apple card is just like game changer. That's like, to me, that's cooler than having a, I don't have a black card. I'm not even going to front, but it's cooler than having one in your uh, wallet is that card. And then third of all is that two-time Super Bowl champ, Justin Tuck, and another friend works for Goldman. Um, so before I let you go, and I said this before we got on the phone that like anybody that I know that would know I was talking to you would say like, oh, you got to ask him about this. You got to ask him about that. You got to ask him about the market. Um, but then when I was uh, speaking to another friend earlier today, mentioned the difference between the economy and the stock market and how the stock market may, uh, may very well look healthy and look like it has a, a healthy um, future in front of it. Whereas the economy can be very daunting and scary right now, as a lot of things in our world are. What is the difference, again, in layman's terms? And, and what are your feelings on both and a bit of like your outlook on the future right now? Sure. Well, the, the economy and markets are connected, you know, always. But there are times when, when markets seem disconnected from what's going on in the economy um, at the moment. But it's, it's complicated because there are a lot of inputs. So this pandemic has significantly shrunk economic activity all around the world due to the shutdowns first in you know, February, March, April, May around the world. Um, but uh, but you know, also because of the decline in activity you know, in services that's continued even as things are opening up because the pandemic is not resolved. So we have enormous uncertainty because of the healthcare situation. It's had an impact on our economic output. And it's obviously had an impact on employment. And that has been balanced by the fact that governments around the world and central banks around the world have done a bunch of things to help support the economy. Monetary policy has been very, very aggressive. Interest rates have dropped down lower. Money is very, very free. Central banks have put a lot of liquidity in that raised confidence and allowed for more financing capability in markets. That's supporting the economy. And in addition, there are a bunch of things that have done on the fiscal side you look here in the United States, when you look at the two packages that Congress has put forward, they're putting money and support into the economy. They're supporting individuals who are out of work and have better unemployment insurance, PPP, a variety of programs. All of that has helped stimulate the economy. The question you have to ask from here when you're thinking about the economy is, how will the healthcare situation resolve and how will the activity level, particularly in the service economy, travel, meetings, conventions, restaurants, hotels, et cetera, how will that get back to where it was before this all started? I think that's going to take a number of years, regardless of how the healthcare situation uh, pans out. And so we have to accept that the overall economic output of the economy is going to be slower 
over the course of the next couple of years, and it's going to take some time for us to get back to where we were. You counter that with the markets, because money is zero, it's free, people at the moment are taking a lot of risk, and they're, they're very attracted to things that are growing or where they think there's opportunity. There's not a lot of places to, um, to put your money, and so I think there's been a little bit of a, you know, a speculative air around markets, but markets have performed, the stock market's performed quite well. I'm not a prognosticator of what the market will do next, but over time, companies need to be valued on some basis that correlates to their earnings. You can, you can value a company very aggressively because you think it's going to grow and it's going to grow into it, but over time, you know, things have to settle out. And so, you know, I think my own view is there's, there are a variety of sectors, a variety of companies that it feels to me like market participants have been more aggressive in bidding up their values than I might personally be. So far, they've been right. Might go on for a while. Might correct at some point. But that's why people feel like the economy, which I think is going to have headwinds for the next few years, is a little bit disconnected from markets because markets aren't behaving like those headwinds are there right now. But that could change very quickly. I can't prognosticate. I think that we will get through this. I think we will get to the other side. Um, but I think we're going to have a bumpy couple of years ahead of us. And I think it's going to require uh, you know, some leadership and an adjustment for us to really work through the impacts of the pandemic and how it shaped you know, economic behavior. Uh, and I think we need to be very, very thoughtful as we go forward as to how we limit economic behavior and you know, balance that against obviously making sure people are safe and sound. And it's a balance. And there's risk in the world and it's not easy or perfect. But those are the things I think we're going to be struggling with as we move forward the next couple of years. Um, and the last question on the market, um, and I won't ask you how you think the market will look post-election. I think that's just too tricky of a question in so many levels. But leading up to the election, do you suspect some drastic change or freeze or hold or um, just in general up until the elections, what does the market usually do and what do you usually see? Well, when, when there's uncertainty, there can be more volatility in markets. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, some of today's volatility in markets was related to the fact that, um, you know, we had a significant event uh, with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Thursday that opens up a different debate that's now going to be pulled into, you know, the election process. And I think that added some uncertainty and, and, and so the markets, you saw the markets on a short-term basis today react to it. I have no idea what the next 45 days will bring. Obviously, how the debate around the election shapes could affect the volatility in the next you know, 45 days. What the result is will affect markets on a go-forward basis and what's articulated by whoever wins at that point in time. Uh, but it's, you know, it's an uncertain period. It's an, it's an uncertain period because of the healthcare situation. It's an uncertain period because of the economic situation. And it's an uncertain period here because of the election at the moment. We will get through it to the other side, but it's, you know, it's very, very hard to predict. And I wouldn't even venture to predict at this point in time. Well, I have taken a lot of your time. I have learned a lot. I want to um, let you know that if you, if you want me to manage you as a DJ, it's a standing invitation. Well, that's very, that's very generous of you, but I... You know, I don't think I DJ enough to have a manager, so I'll. Uh, I thought he was gonna. I thought he was gonna hit you with the. I already got a manager. I will try to continue to make some good music uh, when we get past COVID. You know, perform and and uh, and therefore you know generate some money that can go to charity and and you know we'll see where that goes. But in the meantime, my focus is on 
Goldman Sachs, our people, our clients, you know, at this difficult time, trying to find ways that Goldman Sachs can support the communities we operate in. And we're going to stay focused on that, try to do the best we can. Well, thank you again, man. You live an inspiring life. You work hard. You're a good family man. You focus on hobbies, but you put priorities first and it's inspiring. And I appreciate hearing your story and getting insight and I appreciate you supporting us. So stay safe. Um, I hope to hang soon, play pickleball and, um, and let's talk soon. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, thanks Rich for having me. I really appreciate it. Gianni, it was nice meeting you too. And, um, and stay safe guys and, uh, and be well. Thank you so much, man. Thank you, David. Absolutely.